Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. So glad that you're here this morning. Good morning to all of you watching online up in Port Perry and all of you who are watching later because you're at Cottages. We want to say hi to you too on this beautiful long weekend. We've got a Bible this morning. I'd love you to turn it back to the book of Acts. We're still in this series called Spirit Move. We're going to be near the end of the book in Acts chapter 20. Every one of us, knowingly or not, thinks about purpose in this life and legacy. Legacy is actually a driving force much of, the high, uh, much of the time behind what we think, what we do, how we act, how we use our money, what we think about our future of our families. When you talk to institutions, much of the time they spend vast amounts of resources trying to build legacy and ensure legacy. People wonder about their impact on history. Writing status stems from wanting a life to actually mean something. And yet on this beautiful long weekend, the harsh fact is this that 95 to 99% of what billions have already done in history is lost forever and no one will remember it ever again. Happy long weekend, everybody. Only a few hundred thousand are really remembered and their records or their achievements are eventually broken. Every single new invention or idea really just leads to another one outdating the previous. People that were world-known in their day become little more than trivia answers in games today. Names or events might be remembered, but that's about it. So then, if you're being honest and you're not sort of overstimulating yourself with entertainment and being busy and you sit with yourself, then you are, as a human being, forced to ask this very profound, life-altering question. Why give your life to anything if everything that we are going to do will really be forgotten in the end? Some of you are like, no, I know that's not true. Fine, then tell me what your great-great-great-grandmother's name is. Do you know it? If, if you go on in your family history, do you know what your great times five grandfather's job was, where he came from, what gave him joy? Some of you are like, I did Ancestry.com, I know. Well, you're great, but most of us don't. You know, as a pastor, I have the privilege and the pain of attending a lot of funerals. And in those great emotional moments that all of us need to go through, it's the the carta, it's connected to us being humans, people utter things like this, we'll never forget you, you will be remembered forever. And every time I hear those words inside myself, I just say, that's just not true. So many people strive to be known, to get something that will be thought about or talked about or written about long after their deaths. But in the end, that also is genuinely futile. I was in London a few weeks ago with the gathering of all the leaders of the Alpha Movement from like 110 countries. And I was staying between Kensington and South Kensington, if you know London well, right by the Royal Albert Hall. And every single day, I walked by multiple times the statue there was a man on a horse with a, uh, with a pith hat, and he had a sword, and he obviously was a military officer. Now, I estimate that I walked by that statue 30 times at least in eight days, and I know that hundreds of thousands, actually millions of people, have walked by that too. And here's the truth. I have clue, no clue what the man's name was, what he did, or how significant he was. I just didn't care. 
Now, when that statue was put up, I'm sure it was done with great acclaim. It's in a very prominent place in London. This is obviously a significant person. I'm sure there was thousands of people. But now, in 2017, I walked by it, and I didn't even really want to stop. Now, in our culture, it's even worse. It used to be things like, I think, therefore I am, or I create, therefore I am. But now, in our culture, it is, I am liked on social media, therefore I am. And legacy no longer lasts when you die. Legacy lives and dies literally by the next social media post, by validation on Instagram or going on Facebook to make sure that people still like you even though you never talk to them. What's just true is this, legacy dies when the relationships around the person of significance die or the generation that was present moves on. Very few people, very few things, very few events literally transcend time. Now, we as Christians are in a different boat if we get this right. We as Christians are in a very different place if we have different glasses to see reality as it is. See, we as Christians have something that the world does not when it comes to purpose in this life and legacy in the life to come. And here is where we must begin today's message. God is eternal. God was not created. He is outside of time. His idea was time. And the scriptures are fundamentally clear that those things that we do in the name of Jesus with right motives will be remembered by a forever God forever outstretching all human achievement and and all things. In other words, legacy for Christians is fully and exclusively found in the world yet to come. Our legacy is never to be found here. Jesus said it best. What is it if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul? Here's the beautiful truth of our movement. If we do things for Jesus, for his Father's glory, by the power of the Spirit, with right motives, in the now, God will remember that act forever. Trust me, if you want legacy that lasts, and if you want purpose in this life, then you must do things for the glory of God. And when you do things that are for the glory of God, you will be rewarded, and you will be remembered, and you will be more exalted than Napoleon, or Caesar, or Victoria, or Stephen Jobs, or fill in the blank, because here's the beautiful truth of our movement. The most insignificant nothing in this world who loves Jesus, who does something like feeding another person, will be given legacy in heaven in a way that Caesar could have never imagined, because our God remembers everything, and when things are done in love, he says, I remember forever. You don't need a statue. You need me to remember your love. So here is the beginning of a conversation at the end of Acts, because Paul is now coming to the end of his life. The sunset is literally coming down on his literal life and his ministry, and legacy comes to the forefront. And so now near the end of his third missionary journey, in Acts 20.17, it begins to unfold like this. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. If you've been reading all of Acts, Paul stops, his ship is docked in Miletus, he sends a message to church leaders, and Ephesus is literally 30 miles away. Now you've got to ask yourself the question, why would he ask the elders, the, the bishops, the overseers, the guardians to actually walk or, or take, take a horse 30 miles to come see him? Very profound moment. 
They are the leaders, by the way, of a church established in Acts 19. He, literally, he writes the book of Ephesians to this church. It's made up of former Orthodox Jews who've now confessed Jesus as the Messiah, uh, pagan Greeks, and also occultists, Wiccan witches and Satanists who've all given that up and have now come together in Jesus. And so his friends come. Now, why have they come? Well, his goal was to encourage his fellow leaders to keep going in the faith. And here's why. Because he now knows he will never see them again. This is his last will and his last testament. This is his goodbye. This is him saying to the churches he helped spiritually father, I will never see you again. This is about legacy. And he wants to understand where his legacy is at. And he wants them to understand where legacy must be found. And so we are given, through Dr. Luke, this unique insight as we sit in this most painful of conversations between genuinely close friends with all the emotion and the power and the coming loss and expectation. It says in verse 18, when they arrived, Paul said to them, you know, you know how I have lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. Paul calls on these leaders to confirm from their own experience and their own memories what he has done, what he has taught them, and how he has lived. Now, let's just stop for a moment and watch that. Isn't it shocking to you that Paul begins his goodbye conversation not with all of his writing, not with all his intellectualism, not even with his writing of all the scriptures. He doesn't even start with doctrine. Paul stops and he says, I want you to remember the way I lived my life. Look at my life, my behavior, my character. Why does he start here? Here's the profound leadership lesson. Because he knew that any great leader and teacher, even those entrusted with inspiration, capital T, capital T, God-given truth, truth itself loses value and authority and impact when the delivery comes with someone who is not growing in their ever-needed character. He says, you know how I lived. He says, oh, let me remind you. Not in a braggart way, in an honest way. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of, of, of the Jews. He said, look, I serve the Lord. Now, we read that verse. We go, yeah, yeah, that's an obvious statement, and we should just stop and let the impact sit, just slow down and, and sit in the powerful implication of that statement. Paul understood that everything he has done in his life the good and the successful and the rejected and the accepted, all of it was done for the audience of one, the audience of God, the audience of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He did not live his life and waste his life trying always to please everyone else. Now, I want you to catch this this morning because this goes to the heart of legacy. He is a leader among leaders. He is one of the few that actually transcend time. We are sitting in Ajax talking about an Orthodox Jew who talked about Jesus Jesus 2,000 years ago, and we're talking about him today, but he had been freed from the bondage and the tyranny of trying to have everyone love him. No, don't misunderstand. Paul was not a lone ranger. He worked in team. His spiritual gift theology helps us understand we need to be interdependent. But at the end of the day, Paul says these profound, life-giving, life-freeing words, I did it all for Jesus. His legacy and his impact was held by heaven. It was never held by history or human hands. 
He said, my life has been marked by humility and tears. Some of you who are a little bit more skeptical are going, you get to say your life was humility? Really? Yes. Because what is driving behind the statement of humility for Paul is this. Paul lived his life as a slave. Paul, at his very essence, at his very core, after he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, he never looked back. And here was his worldview. I own nothing. I don't own the churches I plant. I've never owned another human being. I am only a bond slave. Everything I do is just for Jesus, by Jesus, for Jesus, through the Spirit, for the glory of God the Father. I, am, I came into this world owning nothing, and I'm going to leave this world owning nothing because I realize that at the end, all All that I do is really for someone else. And he says, oh, by the way, my my life has been marked by tears. This isn't metaphorical. He really cared for the church. He wasn't a hired gun. He wasn't a consultant. The same heart and spirit that filled Jesus himself, that bled and burned with passion for what God had started, now is found in Paul. And his tears were not just love or passion or joy. They were filled with personal pain. Paul says, I was severely tested by my own countrymen, by my own relatives. There's a connection between Christian life, evangelism, love, holiness, and suffering. There were multiple attempts in Paul's life. And in the end, if you read church history, most historians think Paul was beheaded in Rome for loving Jesus. I want you to think of it this way. It'd be like Paul walking into our midst if you live today and said to Deb Early, our head of HR, oh, I'd like to apply for the, uh, the, the uh, Bowmanville Dermot East pastor. Could I do that? And she'd go, that's great. Thanks, Paul, for coming. Could we have your resume, please? And this is what he would have sent to us. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three. Well, I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews a 40 lashes mining swan. Five times I've been whipped 39 times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and night in open sea. I've been consistently on the move. In other words, I have not had the, the privilege of being rooted I've been in danger from rivers, dangers from bandits, danger from my fellow Jews, dangers from non-Jews, danger in the city, danger in the country. Every time I read this, it sounds like a country song. Just a side note. Danger in the sea, danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I've been cold. I've been naked. And beside everything else, I face the daily pressures of my concern for all the churches. So, Deb, do I get the job? Suffering. He says, that's my life. Not, oh, that's my life. No, that's my life. Tears, suffering, humility, joy, yes. And then he says in verse 20, you know that I've not hesitated, speaking to these elders, to preach anything that would have been helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly and from house to house, in large gatherings and in connect groups. And I've declared both to Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, as he is talking about legacy, he's preparing the long goodbye as he's thinking about what is to come. He again must stop. He is compelled to stop and answer the simple question, why have I 
become a Christian? Why do I think the world needs to become a Christian? What's the deal with the good news of Jesus? And he basically says again, it is remarkably simple. The good news is for everyone, no matter your background, no matter your race, no matter your gender, no matter your history. The most religious people on earth, the most devout people on earth, the most spiritual people on earth that do not follow a formal faith, the most unreligious people are all in the same boat and all need the same saving. That is the scandal of Christianity. The most devout Orthodox Jew and the most Platonic Greek are in the same boat spiritually. And Paul says, I've told them all they need to turn to God. You have to move from other faiths or trusting in your own religiosity or actually in your nothingness and you must turn to the only true living God and you can only do this through repentance. You must turn from your current life of sin, whether deeply religious or not, and trust and get new life through God which is exclusively given through Jesus Christ alone. And as we've seen time and time again in the book of Acts, and we see throughout all of the New Testament, is faith in Jesus Christ just believing he was a historical person, or a person of great significance, or a religious leader, or only a good guy or a prophet? No. Faith is informed trust. Faith is intellectual. Faith is experiential. It's like Jesus came to Paul, and he comes to us, and he says, you need to come to me, because if you come to me, you get back to God in a personal way, and God will show you what your will is for your life and what purposes, and he will also define where legacy actually laughs, lasts. He, he calls you to turn and actually surrender your life and your agendas and your religious background and your faith and your body and your sexuality and your family and your job and your dreams. Anything that you would place before God must become secondary, and you must actually call out to Jesus asking him for forgiveness of sins because he is the only one who has conquered sin. He is to be called Savior in your life. And Lord, you are to confess him as the Son of God. Believe he literally was crucified. He physically came back from the dead. And if you do that, Paul says, and he said this to Jews and to Greeks, and this is what is being proclaimed right now in this place, and you online, and you sitting in that North uh, Durham uh, uh, gym right now, this is the declaration. If you do this, you will be included in the kingdom of God. You actually become a child of God. And here's the great truth that Ken Shigematsu said last week again. God is not distant from anyone. He wants to enter into eternal relationship with you. You are made for this relationship. And so Paul says, I have told everyone they can come home if they want to. And maybe that's even you today. But then the story changes. In the middle of goodbye and legacy, the power of prompting and planning comes to the forefront again. Paul says, and now, compelled by the Holy Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what's going to happen to me there. Now, if you're taking notes today, you've got your Connect Group book out, or you're a highlighter or a circler or whatever, do that around the word compelled. The word compelled here is, I am bound. I am a captive. I am pushed. I am forced. I am dragged by the Spirit of God. I am being guided forcefully by the Holy Spirit. I must obey no matter what the outcome is. And so the Holy Spirit, Paul says here in bold, is actually forcing me to go back to the most dangerous place where I could go, which is Jerusalem. And if that's not only enough, then he says these words that are so easily read, so difficult to understand, so rarely preached in most churches. Verse 23. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me 
that prison and hardships are about to face me. However, I consider my, my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying the good news of God's grace. So let me again just sort of try to bring this in our own context here. So Paul says, every single time I'm traveling, and I go to every single church, so he's in the area. He says, I go to People's Church in Toronto, and I preach my heart out. And then someone walks up with the gift of prophecy and says, Paul, thanks so much. Just so you know, you're going to prison. And then I go down to St. Paul's and Bloor Street, and the Anglicans do their thing. And I preach. And then someone comes up and says, just so you know, the Lord just told me while you're preaching, you're going to get beat up. And then, and then I go over to the Pentecostals at Global Land, and they do all their things. And then someone walks up and says, just so you know, you're going to go to jail. Then I come to C4. Someone else gets up, just so you know, you're about to go to jail. I go to Calvary Baptist. Even with the Baptist, the same thing happens over and over and over again. Paul says, I cannot go to a church service where the Spirit of God does not tell me that suffering is my only option. Now, we in churches sing songs like Spirit Move and, oh, we want fire from heaven. No, Holy Spirit, come and do everything you want. And where the Spirit of God is, there is freedom. And we are inundated globally now with teachers in churches that say that if, if you accept Jesus and the Spirit of God is in your life, you'll be healthy and you'll be wealthy and you'll never be sick again and healing's guaranteed. And they, they No, you are going to suffer, says the Holy Spirit. Self-preservation for a North American is one of our greatest idols. I want to be safe, I want to be never sick, and I want to be comfortable. And the Spirit of God comes to G- through Jesus, uh, by Jesus to Paul and says, by the way, self-preservation is not in the cards for you. So then he says in verse 25, now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom of God will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of all people. You're like, wow, Paul, that's pretty heavy. You're saying like you didn't murder anyone? No, it's out of Ezekiel 18. He basically says this, I have no spiritual blood on my hands. I have actually done what I've been assigned. He says, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has now made you overseers, that's elders, bishops, be shepherds of the church of God, which he has bought with his own very precious blood. So in this moment of legacy, what does a great leader do? He's trained people, now he empowers them and he leads. The weighty responsibility has eternal repercussions. He's reminding them that the Father elected these people. The Son literally shed his divine blood for these people. The Spirit has created local churches and now he says, I have been your shepherd, now you are to be shepherds. I am now leaving and just so you know, this is God's will. Now can we sit with the shepherd thing for a bit please? Again, if you're Taking notes, do that. Peter, the other great leader in our movement at the beginning, said the same thing in 1 Peter 5. Verse 2, you be shepherds of God's flock that are under your care, watching over them. Now, where does Paul and where does Peter get this idea? We found this out when we did 1 Peter together. See, God is our shepherd. The idea is not just metaphor. Actually, shepherd is one of the revealed names of God. We know Psalm 23, for the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
This is actually a name of God, and not only is God our shepherd, it says it's not just individual and specific to you or myself. It actually is a communal thing. Remember Isaiah 40, 11, look your God, look at him. Come, God, uh, the master comes in power, ready to go into action. Like a shepherd, he cares for his flock, gathering lambs in his arm. By the way, just as a side note, that's why when Jesus came along on the scene and he said something that now is found in every children's Bible and we all smile and coo about, he almost got murdered over. When Jesus came along in the book of John and he said, I am the good shepherd, he was declaring, I am Psalm 23. I am the God of Isaiah 40. And again, any good theologian who was an Orthodox Jew would realize the blasphemous implication of the statement unless the one standing in front of him was that person. And so now what we begin to see is that God, the Father, is called our shepherd. Jesus, the Son, is our shepherd. We see that the Spirit of God himself even shepherds us. But now those who are leaders in local churches are now under shepherds who work for the chief shepherd. Now two things need to be understood for all of us here today, all of you watching online. One, God has given authority and leadership to people. Church leadership is not democracy. It is heaven-given assignment. Second, leaders, if you are one here today, we are only stewards. We own nothing. Zero. We have never, nor will we ever own any person that we preach to or serve. The building, if there is one, we never own it. We are only managing another person's work. I love what Paul said in a different context in 1 Corinthians 4, 1. He's speaking to people that are not leaders. He says, this then is how you need to regard us as leaders, servants of Christ, as those entrusted with the mysteries that God has revealed. Speaking to the whole church, Paul is saying, this is how you need to think about elders and pastors in your life. This will actually take a mental act of submission by everyone. Oh yes, I know we're all Christians. Check. We're all priests. That means we all have access to God equally through Jesus. Yes. Yes, there's a level foot at the cross. Yes. We all have spiritual gifts. Yes, that's true. But some have been given the task and the authority to lead. Leaders have been personally affirmed by God himself through the community, through spiritual gifts, and through internal calling. And Paul says, look, we are shepherds and we are servants. By the, by the way, why I'm spending time here today is because so many leaders are in this church, not just of our own church, but other organizations. And so when we need to address legacy, we need to spend time here. Shepherds usually did not own their own sheep. And the phrase that Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians is this He says, I am a bond slave. Now, in Roman culture, this would be fundamentally clear. They would know what exactly it meant. A bond slave was a person who owned nothing at all. They were a slave, and yet they ran the whole operation of the house of their master. They had full influence and access to all the funds of their master, and they oversaw the staff. And Paul basically says, and Peter is basically saying simply this, though we own nothing, we have authority to manage it anyway. So as shepherds, so as bond slaves that Jesus himself has placed over local churches, your chief goal in life and your legacy is tied to how close you become like the chief shepherd. 
Paul implies this, but Peter goes further as he's sitting with these Ephesian elders. And Peter says this in 1 Peter 5 too. Oh, you don't lead because you must, but because you're willing. As God, wants, uh, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So let me say this this morning on this beautiful long weekend. Are you an elder in this church? Are you a leader in this church? Are you on the staff of this church? Do you want to be a leader? Are some of you in the beginning of process, no matter your age, you think that you might actually now have a deep long-term calling to something? Listen closely. There are three places Christian leaders may never lead from. Here are three reasons why you should never lead. Oh, beyond spiritual gifts and community affirmation and beyond God's election and calling in your life, go down to the bedrock of your motives. There are three reasons that must never be the reason why you lead, how you lead, or what fuels your leadership if you already have it. And why this is so important is this. Leadership forces you into situations no one else wants to deal with. When persecution or trial comes, the real you comes to the surface. And you will see quickly why you lead. Paul implies it to these Ephesian elders. Peter explicitly says it. Number one, you never serve out of duty. God loves a generous, willing person, not a person living under compulsion. A leader that loves God and that that has said to God, whatever you ask, I'm at your disposal. At your disposal, I will lead because I love you, because I love your church, and I love the world. See, that word willing is so shocking. When I read it again in 1 Peter, it has two roots. It's a military root and a worship root. The military root is this, I mean the root of the word. The military idea is I will go to the front line and I will die for a greater cause. I'm willing The other thing is worship. I will become the willing sacrifice. In other words, here is what this literally reads like. I am willing to become a sacrificial, love-filled soldier that will lose my life for my king. You still want to become a pastor? He says you never also lead for money. Oh yes, Paul is clear to pay pastors to free them up to do this full time, but you never lead a church to get money to get influence. You, you do not lead to gain opportunity to be famous, to get rich, to write the next best worship song or, uh, or the next great book or in our culture, here's the great needed translation, or to build your personal platform on the back of a local church. Why do you serve? Money? Reputation? To get an extra sense of self-worth for your broken self-image, to add to your nest egg, to prove your critics and parents wrong. No, no, listen, it's not wrong if you get to write a book. It's not wrong if in the end you get a personal platform, but that's not why you do what you do. Christian leadership is the reverse of all worldly leadership. It is worship. You lead because you love Jesus. And your legacy is found in Him. Not How many people follow you each week? And the third thing we are told is we never lead to gain power or abuse power. So Paul says to his friends, I've got to go. The Spirit of God is telling me I'm going to suffer and I'm never going to see you again on this side of heaven. And I would be sitting in that moment like, okay, this is really heavy and this is too much. And Paul just won't stop just keeps saying more tough things. I'm like, shh, and he won't. He looks at his closest friends. 
And then he utters these words that are more terrifying than jail. When he says, I know, I know that I know that I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw disciples after them. Thanks, Paul. You ever seen National Geographic before? When a wolf pack takes down an animal? He says, oh, just so you know, when I leave, there are certain people that are going to come in the church, but actually, and the implication is, even some of you that I'm talking to are going to become wolves. And you notice the legacy issue? Because they want people to follow them, not Christ. And they're going to come in and they're going to start teaching false doctrine. Now, are we talking about predestination? They're going to fight over Arminianism versus Calvinism, women in ministry, spiritual gifts? No, all important secondary issues. This is, is Jesus the Son of God, the Trinity, salvation by Jesus alone, the virgin birth, teaching, oh, you Jesus plus things equals salvation, or you can live like hell, now heaven has saved you. You've got grace, do anything you want because God will cover you. By the way, that's why we just did three weeks in Jude. If you weren't with us, go back and listen. If you want to know if you are a wolf, you're about to become a wolf, or you're following a wolf, go listen to that series. Because as we found out, there are always three areas where false teaching, the old word is heresy, comes up. False ideas of who God is, what he's done. False ideas of how you meet him. And false ideas of how you get to live after you've met him. So Paul says in verse thirty. One, so you be on your guard. You remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears. Now I commit you to God and his word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are being made holy, sanctified. He says, now God has done this and God has done this amazing thing and I can't even believe I'm talking to you because I used to be an Orthodox Jew and you used to be a pagan Greek and you used to be a Satanist and now we're all one in Jesus. This is stunning. But I now need to go because the Spirit of God, our boss, is moving me on. You now have a new role, a new responsibility. There'll be great joy and pain with it. And then he says, and oh, by the way, God is among you. So now you keep staying in the word of, of grace. What's that? The scriptures. You make this the final court of appeal about everything. Second Timothy 3.16, right? All scriptures God breathed and it's useful for teaching us and rebuking us, and correcting us, and training us in, in righteousness, so, so every person of God may thoroughly be equipped for every good work. Well, here are the last words of Paul to his closest friends. He says, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourself know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. Everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work that we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when Paul finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed, and they all wept. And they embraced him, they kissed him. What grieved them the most was the statement they would never see his face again. The closest analogy is when you're sitting in a hospital room and you're saying goodbye. Then they accompanied him to the ship. This is one of the heavier passages in the book of Acts. You're like, John, you're telling me. Oh my goodness. Long weekend. Yeah, I know. 
But what's so beautiful about this passage, what's so needed about this passage, what's so profound about this passage, is it brings everything so quickly into crystal clear context about our lives. Number one, are you a leader here this morning? Or do you want to be one? You see, there's nothing more important than the life of leaders because movements live and die by the life of leaders. And if you're a leader here this morning, this is not me chiding you or yelling. No, no, because I'm also the audience. Leaders are called to live a holy life, period. We are called to think and be deep about faith, life, and practice. We are called to point out what is black and white in the scriptures and what is, what is gray, what is primary, what is secondary. We are called to love people. We are called not to be lovers of money. We are called to be serious about loving the lost. And yet, <laughs> the great unusually unsaid truth is this. All leaders are always one step away from greatness and legacy and disaster. Because unlike so much of the leadership found in the world, Christian leadership actually is the leading out of your own story and your own walk with Christ. So if you're an elder here this morning within the sound of my voice or you think you're about to become one, if you're a pastor or a staff member, if you had a ministry as a volunteer in this church, if you have spiritual influence on anyone, this challenge becomes your calling. If we do not keep close to God and His Word, if we are not regularly in community, we will actually end up becoming bitter and hating those we're called to love and serve. We will become less and less in love with the Master, and so our holiness will drop. We'll be more open to affairs and adultery and stealing and abusing those we're called to guard and shepherd. See, Paul simply here and Peter in 1 Peter 5 shows all leaders how to not only prevent crashes, he actually also shows us how to keep legacy in order. If our real desire is to hear Jesus say, well done, my good and faithful servant, if we really want to have things that ripple into eternity, then as leaders we must regularly, systematically be checking why we're doing what we're doing and how we're doing it because legacy is always at stake. Now for you who are not leaders, and that's many of you in our community, can I just ask you to do something? If you would take Acts 20 home and take 1 Peter 5 home and read it and see every command to every leader and every thought for every leader and you made that your prayer list for us, I know Jesus will answer it because it's guaranteed. We desperately need your prayers. Desperately need your prayers. Being a pastor in North America in a social media context is like being an MP, but Satan's involved and everyone uses the God card. It's non-winnable. And if you would go home and say, help not one pastor in our church to be a lover of money, do you know how significant that would be? Help every pastor to be a good shepherd. Now don't go, oh, and I need... No, no, just let, it, let, it, let the boss deal with us. You breathe. But pray it for us. Pray it for us. Because movements, whether you love it or not, rise and fall on their leaders. Here's the second thing I just want to say that's so important. Have you ever asked yourself what motivated Paul? 
Like, really? I mean, the humility, the tears, the suffering, the preaching, the love for leaders, the church planting, giving up as a family. Like, where did it all come from? Was he superhuman? Was it like just this grit, duty, religious zeal? No. This is what I'm discovering even more and more now in the middle of my life. Paul was the most A-type, intense personality. He makes me look like a puppy. I, I couldn't have worked for him. But let me say this to you. What motivated Paul was love for Jesus. Paul had this ongoing love relationship through the Spirit with Jesus. I don't fully even get yet. But here's what I know with him. The thing that motivated him day in and day out was not fame, nor was it sort of some weird narcissistic self-abuse. It was Jesus' love is worth everything. Which brings me to the second idea of suffering. Christians must take on suffering that they can avoid because of their commitment to the gospel, which makes suffering worthwhile. People will be motivated to suffer if leaders and Christians model it for them. Now, this is not saying suffering for suffering's sake. This is not saying, well, you know, um, I, I stole and I'm in jail and I'm suffering. No, you stole. It's not being a belligerent idiot Christian who's never intellectually involved in saying a bunch of spewous, idiotic things and going, oh, I'm just suffering for the cause. No, you're a jerk. That's not what we're talking about. But if you let the Scriptures speak, 1 Peter 2.20, how is it credit to you if you receive a beating for doing something wrong and enduring it? You don't. But if you suffer for good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called... Because Christ suffered for you, leaving us, you, an example of how we're called to follow in his footsteps. In other words, Christian life is a calling into salvation and a calling into suffering. The, the image that Peter uses here is of a little child learning how to actually read for the first time and drawing their letters out, tracing the letters. And Peter scarily says, we are to trace the passion and suffering of Christ in our normal Christian life. His brother... His half-brother James says, Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing develops perseverance. Uh, Paul, at the end of his life, writing Philippians, who knew Jesus better than anyone here, anyone here says in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ. We're like, no, you do know Christ. He's no, I want to know the power of the resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. You say, well, John, how do we suffer? Well, some of you will suffer by family or friends rejecting you when you become a follower of Jesus. Others of you, many of us, it is denying what you want, what you feel. And see, this is something that I need to just say today. So many of you are trying to obey Jesus genuinely. You are denying yourself, but you have not felt redemption in your suffering. Let me use sexual purity as the obvious one in our culture. Jesus is explicit about what you're allowed to do and what you cannot do. And people are like, I am suffering. And I'm like, yes, you are. But when is the last time you, as a person who wanted to go in one direction and you're not allowed according to the Scriptures, stopped and said, number one, yes, I am suffering sexually, and number two, now I give this suffering as worship to Jesus because I know what he promises in the life to come is better than my fulfillment now. 
Some of you have actually phenomenal dreams, and they're good dreams. They're not ungodly. And the Spirit of God has come to you and said, no, not that, this. See, no matter what you've done for Christ, no matter how big or small the suffering is, you must perpetually make it worship or the suffering seems insufferable. But if the worship is the motivation for your suffering and you really, really, really believe that legacy is better in the life to come, you will do it with joy. If you do not have joy in your suffering, you have to ask yourself the question, is it worship to you yet? Legacy. No matter who you are this morning, whether you're in your 80s and 90s and you're from the builder generation or the baby boomers or you're a Gen Xer like me, always sad, or a millennial with your whatever's going on, or the Generation Z that's behind you millennials, oh, get ready, they're not like you at all. Can I just say these things to you? How are you building your legacy? Really? If you're not a Christian, become a Christian. That's the best legacy builder you can get. God will remember you forever and you'll experience eternal love, period. If you are a Christian today, how are you spending your money? You giving 10% like the scripture says? No problem. How's your time with your family? If you come from a Christian family, you know, right, that church happens at home before it happens here. I was shocked when I was in London. I heard a stat that they said that 60% of millennials do not at all experience dinner with their families. Family, the priority of large and small gatherings in church, like the scriptures are clear about how we use our money. I just want to say, like very quickly this week, would you stop and say, how am I building appropriate legacy? What ripples into eternity and what doesn't? And of course, evangelism. If people are the only things that last, please share your faith in any way you can with the style of personality you are. Spend your time not worrying about things that go away. You can't take U-Hauls to heaven. I've been at every funeral. I've not seen one yet. We're called actually to live a life that is reflected on the world to come. Our world is running around trying to stay young and sexy. I just li- I'm never going to be Justin Timberlake. I've come to the realization. <laughs> no, seriously. Billions of dollars trying to stay young and sexy and, and money and things and power. And then when life feels empty, we entertain ourselves to avoid the reality of goodbyes. I just want to say, like, you know what? We don't have to live like that as Christians. Because Jesus has declared to us that we can have purpose in this life and we can have legacy in eternity that is so much stronger than anything we could buy or have or lay with. Last thought. Behind the leadership and the godly suffering and the legacy and behind God moving in families and reconciling people and moving in cities and saying hi and goodbye. Do you notice in the book of Acts one simple thing? The Spirit of God is behind it all. You cannot avoid the Spirit of God anywhere in the Scriptures, but especially in Acts. And so as I was praying this morning and praying all week and just saying, Lord, what do you want to do? Because there's a lot to wrestle with in this passage on a long weekend. I just sense this. So would you all stand with me? Could you stand up in Port Perry where you are? Again, if you're able to stand...
wherever you are virtually, I'd love that this morning. Let me just pray a few things. Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit. I mean, you're everywhere. We say this all the time. You're everywhere, but make yourself known among us. The same Spirit that prompted Paul is here. So you're welcome, Holy Spirit. As I was praying this week, I just had this overwhelming sense that someone in the north uh, is supposed to follow Jesus today. You are a person, I have no clue who you are, but just this overwhelming sense that you're part of or connected to our north community, and today is the day you're supposed to say yes to Jesus. And so on behalf of literally thousands of people in our church, we want to say come home. Because it's the only thing that lasts. If that's you, don't, don't fight him, come. Second of all, as I was praying this week, in this community, in the Ajax community, in this service, a great sense that there was a person or group that had been suffering, saying no to things they so desired and they were doing it for Jesus but they were almost about to give in and they didn't know why they kept doing it. So I'm supposed to say to you as one of God's servants, Jesus honors your suffering. He sees your suffering. Give it to him as worship and you'll have joy. And lastly, there's no agenda here. I've got no background to this. In this community, I'm not sure if it's this service or the next, one person among us has been wrestling profoundly with Jesus about something you own. I don't know if it's land, a house, a boat. I, I don't know what the item is. And you have kept hearing the Spirit of God saying you're supposed to give it for kingdom purposes. And you're like, I don't know if I'm hearing God. So I'm just going to tell you, I'm not saying it's even for C4. That's irrelevant. But there's this strong sense. And I'm supposed to say to whoever you are, no, you are hearing the Spirit. Put this in the legacy bucket that lasts forever. And see what the Lord does with that. So all of us just say simply to you, Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you for your death, the death of Christ. Thank you for the resurrection of Christ. Thank you for the Spirit of God. And we simply pray, Holy Spirit, come and speak to every person in our community, across our whole church. Lead us and guide us to whatever place you would have us. And help us to be marked as a community that's in step with the Spirit, who knows where legacy is and where legacy needs to be. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.